0: Today, we're going to start the conversation with David Lambert, Managing Director of RightSide Capital. David, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: So, uh, tell us about you. Tell us about RightSide. Let's get uh, acquainted.
1: Okay. Well, what, really quickly about me. Um, I've predominantly been a career entrepreneur before starting RightSide Capital, so uh came out to the San Francisco Bay Area to go to, to, go to school, uh, went to Stanford, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, month after I graduated, started my first company, and then over the next sort of eight, 16 to 17 years, founded and ran two different companies, one a computer hardware company, one sort of a traditional dot .com software company. Uh, and then beginning sort of in 2008, 2009 timeframe, Started talking about sort of the seedling of the idea of Right Side Capital with one of my partners, and then uh, we ended up going live and starting investing in 2012. Uh, we've got three of us uh, now, so by the time we were live, there are three partners, uh, all of us really career entrepreneurs, a lot of operational experience. And what we do at Right Side Capital is we're basically a quantitative, data-driven, uh, pre-seed stage investment firm. And I can give you some uh, pretty good ideas of what we invest in. For the most part, we're looking to invest in companies that are looking to raise relatively small rounds of funding, so anywhere between $100,000 to $500,000 as a total round size. We're usually a pretty small check, anywhere between $50,000 and $200,000, but typically $100,000, our most common check size. Uh, We're generally looking for companies that are pretty capital-efficient and have capital-efficient business models. So most of the companies we've invested in have either been bootstrapped or have just raised relatively small amounts of capital by the time we invest in them. Uh, we're generally looking for companies that already have a live product, generating a little revenue. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of what we invest in has about 5000 per month or higher. Uh, we are not necessarily looking for companies that are looking to go down the venture capital channel. So we're fine if you want to go down the venture capital path and you think that's right for you, but I would say that probably three out of four of the companies that we invest in, uh, at the time that we invest, it's a reasonable assumption that they could get to cash flow positive with two or three million raised over the life of the company and not necessarily mm-hmm. need to go on the high cash burn, high fundraise sheet for the moon path. So we're completely fine if you want to do that. Uh, we basically invest... Usually a round or two earlier than what you would think of as traditional seed investors, you know, and usually around earlier than what most other pre-seed investors would do. Our sort of typical round might be a company that's raising just two or three hundred thousand dollars, and we might be a hundred thousand of that. We're based in the Bay Area, but we predominantly invest outside of the San Francisco Bay Area and outside of New York City. I would say San Francisco and New York. Probably makes up 20 to 25 percent of our portfolio combined, and the rest mm-hmm. is in geographies outside of, the, of those two cities. Uh, but we do predominantly invest in sort of in North America, so mostly U.S., okay. some Canadian-based startups, occasionally in Mexico.
0: And uh, what about sectors? It's a B2B preference. What kind of uh, companies do you like to? invest Yeah, in? so
1: we, you know, our favorite business model is definitely B2B SaaS. We don't, mm-hmm. have a, we don't have a particular focus where we have to, to invest in that, but when it ends up happening in today's world, it takes a lot less capital to build a successful B2B SaaS business than it does to build a consumer business. So that's something that, so you know, our mix has changed over time as sort of the capital needs for different business models have changed. I would say back mm-hmm. in 2000, 2012, you know, 2010 to 2012 timeframe, You know, it was probably cheaper to build a consumer product because if you could get an article written about you on TechCrunch or in some news media, you'd get thousands to tens of thousands of users overnight and you could sort of test your product, see if people liked and used it. Now you can't do that. Um, And so it's much more expensive, and just most BBC companies don't end up fitting what we're looking for. So we we try to keep an open view, because what's capital efficient today might be very different than what is just a year or three years from now. So we try not to view ourselves as sector-focused. But 70 to 75% of what we invest in in today's world does end up being B2B B2B business models, mostly SaaS. Got it.
0: So um, did you read my recent um, series of bootstrapping to exit articles? I think I've written several.
1: Um, Yeah, I have read some of them and I've listened to some of your previous uh, interviews, so have a very good idea sort of philosophically where you're going, and uh, we're very much aligned with that. Uh, We think, you know, at a high level, we think most entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurial world at a high level has been somewhat brainwashed, we think, by the venture capital world into believing that the rounds of funding you raise and the amounts and who you raise it from and those valuations are what determine success and in our view, what determines the success is the last check into your company, which is the one where you're being acquired. And everything else is about working backwards towards that.
0: So uh, let's talk about a few of your companies, um, walk us through a few examples of what you have invested in. And in particular, um, give us some insight into what was the state of the company when they came to you, who were they, how did you find them, and what is it that attracted you enough to want to write the check?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, we're we're very active investors. So, you know, we've made, invested in 900 companies since 2012. So, you know, very high volume. I can highlight a couple, but it's it's not that we have a very specific profile that we're looking for. Um, You know, we have some companies that will be well-known sort of brand names that have gone down the venture capital route. You know, some of those might be, you know, PillPack, ClassPass, DataRobot, you know, things like that. Um, We've got a lot of companies that will be completely off people's radar because they're going after sort of niche vertical B2B SaaS markets that people don't know about. So, you know, we have a company called PetDesk that is a B2B SaaS product for the veterinarian market, Um, Mm -hmm. and they're doing wonderfully, but almost no one's going to have heard of them. Uh, We've got a very interesting company called Labfellows that has a, B2B SaaS product that targets the, the life sciences, you know, biotech lab market and is uh, mm-hmm. a product that helps sort of lab operations. But again, not, a, not necessarily a market or uh, a product that most individuals will be that familiar with. In general, what we look for in companies uh, is, is sort of a, a host of things. We like, you know, we sort of look at team, we look at how much capital you raised to get to where you're at. We look at what your current cash burn is now. We look at your, your unit economics and, you know, a host of other things. And we basically suck up a lot of data points, and then we make a very quick yes or no decision, usually in a week or less, um, and move forward. And what our philosophy is, which is somewhat different from most firms, is we actually think at this early stage you can't predict much about the future for any company that you're looking at. So we do... Almost no subjective analysis where we say, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Do we think there'll be demand for this product? How large will this market get? We think that at the stage that we invest in, there's too many variables of uncertainty, and you just really can't be that accurate in making any predictions going forward. And, and so that, that step, that big subjective analysis step doesn't add much value. And that would be in the scenario where companies don't pivot their business models a lot. But the reality is half the companies we invest in that are wildly successful don't look anything like what we invested in originally. So when you add that okay. twist in, we think that subjective analysis doesn't sort of do much. So what we do is we we focus a lot more in today's world on unit economics, cash burn, and team, things like that. And, you know, can, is your sale price point high enough to support a sales force or not? And sort of, you know, what are your likely cash needs in the near term going forward? And then we, you know, we protect ourselves. It doesn't de-risk each individual investment that much. Most of what we invest in is going to fail, but we do hundreds and hundreds of investments to sort of smooth out the risk curve at that early stage.
0: And so what, what kind of fund size are you working with to be able to do that many investments?
1: Yeah, we have uh, our, our current fund is 15 million to $20 million fund. We have you know, sort of $50 million under management over our, you know, all of our funds, so mm-hmm. relatively small fund sizes. To date, Um, you know, first fund was launched in 2012 and was very much a proof-of-concept fund. Um, But we still did, you know, over 250 investments out of that fund.
0: Have you seen exits?
1: Yeah, there's been a handful of exits. So, I mean, one of the companies I just mentioned, you know, earlier on, PillPack, you know, they were bought by Amazon, you know, for almost a billion dollars earlier this year, Um, you know, a lot of companies that have sold to will be companies people haven't heard of. Um, but yeah, what, you know, one of the things that we're in favor of and, and don't mind at all is companies selling at, at lower valuations, sort of. A- Define lower
0: valuation don't for Don't make me. the headlines.
1: Anything in the 20 to hundred million dollar range.
0: Okay, good. Uh, well, so, you know, as, as, as uh, the audience, um, uh, if you haven't read this article, by the way, the Bootstrapping to Exit article, Maureen will share it in the public chat. You definitely should read it. Um, most exits happen in the sub-50 million range, strategic exits. So you're gonna have to manage your capital in to the company to be able to make money for everybody at the sub-50 million range. So I'm happy to hear the range that you gave, 2,200 million, to 100 million is, is good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, rightside Capital was founded, you know, sort of based on the knowledge and the data that most of the exits happen at the sub-$50 million range. Um, and there's very few once you start getting north of $100 million. So right. our, our high-level goal is to build a really diversified portfolio of companies that, you know, at the time that we invest, most of them, you know, are on a path where they could take advantage of that sort of the most active and liquid exit market that's out there, which we view as that low-value low M&A market. And then some companies, mm-hmm. some smaller subsets, self-select themselves out of that because they believe their business can scale a lot higher or they just want to go on a you know, higher risk profile for their business, and they end up going down the venture capital path. And we're completely fine with that, too. You know, We, we give intros to VC firms for any companies that want to do that path, but we certainly don't force so, that.
0: Can you talk about a couple of examples of, of these companies that nobody has heard of, that have found good exits,
1: um, that have found ones that no one has heard of, that have found good exits. Um, sure, I'll give I'll give even an example of one that uh, that did an interesting uh, pivot and found a good exit. You know, sort of went had a, you know went forward well, everything fell apart, pivoted, and then everything came back. Um, so one of them was a country, company called um, – that goes by Draft now. Um, they had a different, slightly different name earlier on when we invested. And they were in the – this is actually a, one of our consumer ones, but they were in the daily fantasy, uh, sports fantasy world when we invested. And this was sort of before the, the government in the U.S. had tr- sort of – a lot of the states had tried to shut that market down. Uh, they had, boot, you know, bootstrapped and off of almost no money become the sixth or seventh largest player in that space. Uh, we invested in a small round that they did. They grew successfully. And then that you know you had two large players in that market that came in and raised hundreds of millions in venture capital, bludgeoned each other to death, and pretty much killed off everyone else in that market. And they sort of saw that path happening, and they ended up selling off their, the, the assets they had built to one of those two dominant players, sort of, you know. Mm -hmm. And then they ended up restarting and building out a consumer product that was not based on live betting, that was sort of based on social networks and things like that, started to get traction there. And because they were capital efficient, they were able to stay alive long enough to where that market sort of came back around to being a little more friendly to live betting. They started pivoting Mm -hmm. back into that, but with a substantially different business model. And then a, a public company from the U.K., which where gambling is legal, came in and wanted to enter the U.S. market and mm-hmm. made them an offer that was in the you know, mid-tens of millions of dollars range, and they sold rather quickly at that point. Mm-hmm. And it was a great outcome for the entrepreneurs, and the only reason they were able to, to, to execute on that exit is because they had been very capital efficient to date. You know, They had not raised millions and millions of dollars. I think they had raised Mm -hmm. something along the lines of two to two and a half over their entire lifetime to uh, there. Some other interesting things that happen that you can put yourself in play for as an entrepreneur if you're capital efficient is sometimes feeding into the the private equity world as well and getting Mm -hmm. partial liquidity. So um, that company that I mentioned, Petdesk, they were also very capital efficient and they recently had around, it was like a $12 million round led by a private equity firm, or a firm that sort of, it was a venture firm that sort of acted like a private equity firm a little bit in how the round came together. And the company was able to get new capital in uh, to, to grow the business, but also a substantial amount of that went to buy out some of the existing cap table and the founders were able to get some liquidity from that mm-hmm. exit as well. So we've had a few different companies that have gone down that path, um, and have raised rounds where they got partial liquidity and then get to keep going forward with the business.
0: So um, here's a question. You've mentioned mm-hmm. pivot several times. Um, you know, pivot is a very tricky thing to manage. And it's a very tricky thing to manage from a cap table point of view, because if you need to raise more capital to support a pivot, that means that your early investors didn't really get a lot of valuation. Um, nonetheless, That happens, and it it happens very regularly. So here's a question that's a slightly more subtle question. I was actually coaching one of our entrepreneurs, one of our premium members, yesterday. And this is a company, it's a SaaS company, B2B SaaS company, that has a couple of paying customers, has three POCs going right now. But their paying customers or POCs are not in the vertical where they think they're going to build the bulk of their business so they they have you know in the in course of figuring out the product they have decided that there is a vertical that they want to go after but the initial traction is not yet there so you know these days seed investors want everything checked out so would this be the kind of company they do have some uh, you know recurring revenue a little bit of recurring revenue right now Probably four or five thousand a month. Is this the kind of company that would fit your investment thesis from a B two B SaaS point of view?
1: Um, potentially, it's uh, it's on the cusp. It would sort of depend a little bit. You know, that would be at the high level. If they haven't raised a lot of capital to date and they only need a relatively small round, that would be a company that would sort of make it towards our into our front end screens and that we would look at and dive deeper. You know, one of the mistakes a lot of people make and a lot of entrepreneurs make when they look at our website or they hear me talk, they think, ah, you know, I'm a startup, I've got over 5000 a month in revenue, I'm looking to raise a, a round that's below, you know, $500,000, i am looking to do it at $2.5 million. I check everything on your box, therefore you're just going to fund me. You know, those are sort of <laughs> my criteria for you to even get in the front door and for us to start to take a look at you, because almost everything we fund fits in that profile. For a company like that, it would really depend, um, you know, are those POCs just very short deals where they, they've got 5K a month revenue, but that's for the next 60 or 90 days, and then that goes away? Or are these sort of ongoing indefinite pilots where these are companies that are sort of trying it, you know, as a SaaS product ongoing, at a, at a, and then they're debating whether to scale out and be much larger? Mm-hmm. If it's that and the price point is fairly high where we're very convinced you know, it can definitely support a sales force. Then that's probably the profile of a company that that we could potentially invest in. Um, usually, though, you know, we we discount POC and pilot revenue. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, so if, if if they were that same profile and they just had four or five thousand in revenue of customers that had gone through pilots and are using it live, we wouldn't care that those customers weren't necessarily in the market that they think. Is going to be the main market so they, go they have, after.
0: They have a couple of customers, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm just using this to kind of see how you think about deals. Um, these guys have uh, real revenue uh, from, from a couple of customers. and then okay, yeah. more But yeah, yeah. let and, me throw one point you've made is how much capital has gone into a company? Can you elaborate? So for for a company to have got to four $5,000 MRR, what is comfortable from how much capital has gone into that process?
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna give you my 2019 answer to that and then maybe yeah. I'll give you a little bit of a backstory because that's, that's changed substantially from 2012 to 2019 as far as what's sort of yeah. possible in the entrepreneurial world. So in today's world, I would say, you know, the average company that, that we're investing in that's, raised, that's got four or five KMRR, you know, has probably raised, you know, $100,000. Previously, mm-hmm. you know, some small subset of that, it, it, which is sort of growing each year, maybe has raised nothing and is just bootstrapped entirely, or just been founder some founder dollars that have gone in. Um, and I would say for for a company at that stage to be a fit for us, it'd probably be a max of about 150,000 that has gone in. Mm-hmm. Um, as you get to some higher numbers, you know, if we're investing in a company that has 25 or 30,000 a month in MRR already, then you know, the, it's a wider range. It can be anywhere from they haven't raised a penny to maybe they've raised up to about 250 to 300 mm-hmm. before. If, it's more, if the good. numbers are more than that, it's probably exactly. not a fit.
0: Very good. Excellent. Very helpful.
1: And, so, and if you um, wanted to talk about pivots a little more, you know, because we've got data across, you know, almost 1,000 different companies that we've seen evolve over time, and what we've noticed is the most important thing at these early stages, and one of the things we care the most about is cash burn. And mm-hmm. what ends up happening is if you if we invest in a company that has let's say it has 10,000 a month, 10k MRR right now, and they go out of the gate burning forty, fifty thousand 50000 a month in revenue. You know, they've probably raised a round where they've got 10 months of runway. You know, just a few months in the company starting to stress about this cash wall they're going to hit, you know, later that year and subconsciously those founders and that team is going to have blinders on and they're going to be of the mindset of we've got to make this business model that we're on right now work or our company we go out of business soon mm-hmm. if you take that exact same profile of company and instead of 40 or 50,000 a month revenue you know of cash burn they're burning you know 10,000, 15, 20,000 a month Mm -hmm. that entrepreneurial team is not going to have those blinders on. This is all subconscious. They're naturally going to be sort of have their heads up looking, is there any opportunity that's greater than what we're currently doing out there? And that company, Mm -hmm. even if they get from 10 to 20 KMRR, if in talking with their customers they discover a need that's much greater than the one they're addressing, they might feel comfortable throwing out their entire business model and pivoting Mm -hmm. to that, that, that new product. Um, and they're going to be okay doing that because when you're burning that small amount, you still might be running out of capital in six or eight months, but it's not as stressful if you know, all right, at worst I can weigh as 150 or 200 and I've got another year, you know, or yeah. 10 months or a yeah. year. And so that's what we look for the most. And, and I could walk you through an example of one just this year that we invested in that, that sort of had unusual and had that phenomenon. So we invested in a company – I think it was just May of last year, they had somewhere between 5 to 10K MRR. I think it was around 8. It was a B2B SaaS product for the SMB market. By the end of this year, they were up to around 30K MRR, which is mm-hmm. you know, pretty impressive, and they had raised, you know, I think, less, less than 100000 to date before we invested in them. And, but interestingly, along the way, they had had multiple of their customers ask for a specific product, that was substantially mm-hmm. different than the product they made, and in in November they made the decision. Hmm, we've had enough people ask for this, and we could build it. Let's try building a, a prototype of this and take it to market in January and see what happens. And they built this new product, and they went and they did a pitch to like 50 different customers, and it was incredible. Like 80 to 90 percent of them signed up mm-hmm. for for this and said we would buy this and it's sort of close ratio you just never get. And so mm-hmm. here's a company that had just gone from, you know, eight to 30K MRR, and they because came to the decision, six. yeah, that we're gonna toss our, our old product out the window, and basically we'll make that sort of a light version of that that's a free plug-in, and this new product's where we're going, and they've gone out and they've just signed up about 70K worth of MRR in two months mm-hmm. for this new product. And the only reason they were able to do that is because they had low cash burn. You know, if they were burning a lot, their answer to those companies would have just been, no, we can't build that. That's not what we do.
0: Yeah. Cool. So how many deals do you see a year?
1: A a large number. So we get asked this question a lot. (laughs) How many deals do we have to look at to see what we do? And we have a lot of sources of deal flow. So it really depends on the channel. So... You know, one of our our major ones is actually just random people that come to us off, you know, via email, inbound LinkedIn, Internet. We drive everybody to a page in our website. So if you go to rightsidecapital.com slash submit, we spend a lot of paragraphs explaining what it is we look for in companies. And at the bottom, if you think you're a fit, you can fill out that pre-screening form, and we respond to 100% of people that fill that out. Um, Through that channel, though, it's a very small percentage. Um, that we end up, you know, even going to the next step. You know, most of the time we're saying you're not a fit and here's why. And I'd say the percentage that we end up investing in is a low single-digit percentage. Um, on the other hand, you know, we've got over 2,000 existing founders that are out there and are scouts on the ground and have a really good idea of what we're looking for and we're referring deals in. Those deals, because they're a bit curated and, and they have a pretty good idea of our investment philosophy and what we're looking for, it's a higher percentage that we're going to end up investing in. Um, you know, that might end up being in the 10 to 20% number. And then we work with a lot of startup accelerators. There's a handful that we provide the capital that they use to run, and we get a piece of sort of every company going through the startup. And then there's a the number that we work with where, you know, we're one of the few investors that can move quickly and will invest in companies on the way in or during the first month of a program. So, you know, the question is if a if – a, startup managing director gets 800 applications, screens it down to 10 that they let in, and then gives us a referral to three that they think would be a good fit because they know our profile, and we say mm-hmm. yes to two of those, did we just invest in two out of three, or did we just invest in two out of 800? You know, I'm not I'm <laughs> not sure what the answer to that is. Um, you know, and there's, there's other channels beyond those, so it just varies a lot.
0: Cool. All right. So, um I guess the question I was trying to ask you, that was you gave a very good and interesting answer to a different question, but i the question I was trying to ask you is... Oh,
1: okay,
0: sorry. Given, you a different, uh, ...the deals that you see, let's say if you look at the last 12 months or 18 months, what trends have you seen?
1: Yeah, so the, the biggest trend is sort of an extension of a trend that we've seen the entire time we've been investing, and that's an extension of sort of a 30-year trend in the software business, which is that... At the earliest stages of product formation, when you're actually building your product, it's just gotten cheaper and cheaper every year to build that initial product or prototype, to get it to a stage where you can sort of go to the market and prove if you can generate revenue or not. And you know that was probably 25 million in 1984. It was you know five million in 2004. It was you know a million in 2010. And you know when we started investing in 2012, you know the average company probably had to spend $250,000 to $500,000 to just to get a product to the point where it could take it to the market and see if it could sell it at all. And I would say by 2015, in the software world, that average cost was down you know, below 200000 And today's world, it's even lower than that. So the biggest trend that we see is because of that, there's a lot more startup activity, particularly in the software spaces. And the cream of the crop each year just has more and more revenue, without having raised that much capital. And they're able to sell to customer profiles that you wouldn't have thought possible to sell to without that much capital. So a year and a half ago, we thought, hey, this is a mi- really interesting. We're now seeing a lot of companies each year that haven't raised anything and actually have a product that's generating 10, dollars $20,000 a month revenue. But we weren't seeing companies that had enterprise products, you know, where it was 1000 $2,000, $5,000 a month price points that had raised hardly any revenue. And in the last 12 to 18 months, we're starting to get a steady trickle of those. So companies that have raised anywhere from nothing to, you know, less than 150000 and they have products that are like $2,000, $5,000 a month products, and they actually have customers paying them and using it, it would have just been unheard of two or three years ago. You know, the conventional you wisdom know, is you, you needed a million to I it. have
0: a slightly different analysis of this trend. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's not that it's become cheaper to build these products. It has become cheaper. Of course, it doesn't cost $25 million anymore to build anything. But uh, I think it's because entrepreneurs have become a bit savvier about bootstrapping, and I will take, take some credit for uh, for pushing this message heavily. Um, I think people realize that it's a much better deal to bootstrap first, get to level of validation, including paying customers, before going out and beating on VC's doors, I think people people are starting to understand that entrepreneurship doesn't equal financing. You don't wake up in the morning and go start beating on VC's doors and expect anything to happen. Um, So I think people are realizing that they have to put in 12 to 18 months, sometimes 24 to 36 months of bootstrapping before they should go out to raise financing and they're just not wasting time going to VC's doing that.
1: Yeah, I think that contributes too. I mean, at the end of the day, there's just a lot of factors. So, I mean, there's that aspect, but you know, also developer tools are just more powerful than they were three years ago, yes. six years ago, 12 years ago. So two developers can day, today can do what it took six to do, five years ago, and the same five yes. years before then, and you just have so many more cloud products, tools, and services that you can leverage as a startup that you maybe had to build or pay for, you know, at much higher prices for earlier on. So it's, there's no single answer, but I definitely agree what you said contributes a lot too. It's just a lot of factors have gone into this. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more companies that have been able to get, you know, generate capital with relatively little, little raised, and these days even generate capital off of some enterprise products with relatively little raised.
0: Yes. Great. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, exactly what uh, what we need to uh, have our own.